Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams, and we'll be talking about the nature of hope. Uh, so we read a little bit from St. Augustine's uh, In Caridian on Faith, Hope, and Love, but we basically talk through Augustine's definition of hope and how that relates to what Trevor is studying uh, for his dissertation, which is a kind of philosophical uh, way of understanding hope. So, uh, you know, Trevor is more in the realm of philosophy of religion, modern philosophy of religion, and so he has a slightly different angle on thinking through some of these theological topics like the virtue of hope, and so I hope that this uh, conversation will be interesting, and it is something very uh, close uh, to um, Trevor's heart and mind all the time. Uh, so we wanted to release that for you all. Um, it's just another conversation among us. Um, so I just wanted to say uh, thank you to all the Patreon supporters. Um, so in, in the last several weeks, we've had a few more uh, come through, and, and that has been very beneficial to us. Um, so we're able to, you know, um, keep these episodes up and going um, and, and do all the stuff that we need to do for hosting our website and for our uh, keeping the podcast and those sorts of things. So um, all of those contributions have been... Uh, uh, are very. Um, I'm very appreciative of all of those, uh, all of those of you who've supported. Um, our newest supporter um, is James Alexander, um, and uh, James uh, is, is. You know, we just really appreciate him um, uh, supporting us. Um, I've also had another um, email from someone who was just detailing how listening to this podcast. Um, has encouraged them in their faith and helped them feel uh, confident to talk even with their children about their theology and about their faith and how that has been encouraging both to their family um, and to them as an individual. And I didn't want to share the name of this specific person, uh, but but I just really uh, appreciate um, hearing stories like that, hearing ways in which this podcast has been a blessing to uh, Christians from around the world. Um, so not, not just in the United States where I'm from, uh, but, but in England and in Northern Ireland and in Australia, we've had people come from all over the world um, at, listen to the podcast. So uh, without much further ado, um, the next conversation will be with Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams on the nature of hope. We will have other conversations with theologians and other conversations with Tom and Trevor in the future, but this is where we're, uh, this is, uh, so, but I hope you appreciate this conversation with Tom and Trevor. Please do rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, drop us a note if you like. Um, we always appreciate it. Thank you, and here's the episode. Uh, so, we are talking this morning about hope, um, and we're doing this in part because uh, we have a budding expert uh, from a philosophical perspective on hope. Tom, were you going to say something? Sorry. No, no, huh? Nope. Oh. Um, and so I wanted to kind of give Trevor an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about something that he is studying for his dissertation. Uh, I wanted to connect it to uh, the the kind of the early church history, which has been what we have focused on uh, at the podcast um, in our conversations. Uh, so we, I did so the one place that – I mean Augustine can talk about hope in a few different places. I know some places in the sermon where he talks about it. He says some interesting things about how the Holy Spirit is a down payment. Um, and so we have reason to hope because the Holy Spirit is our down payment for the resurrection. Um, and he doesn't bring that up in this particular section. Uh, but uh, But there is some stuff like that that kind of comes in 
But also, there's another famous work, the Enchiridion. Um, and the Enchiridion is interesting because it is actually uh, – it, it is also one of those books that finds its way into lots of medieval theology. Um, and so for of the of the Augustinian works that get uh, sort of recycled, uh, this is one uh, of of those that pops up a lot. It pops up in debates about predestination in the 10th century uh, and the 9th century with Gottschalk of Orbay. Um, it pops up in uh, discussions of purgatory. Uh, it pops up, you know, just all different places. In part, uh, it's so you know, and just sort of kind of like a little bit of a historical background of Enchiridion. So it, it comes from the Greek word that means like a small knife um, it, or dagger. It's something that's meant to be, or a, in it, but it also means a little book. Um, and it's like it's supposed to be a quick summary of the faith. Um, so it was intended uh, by Augustine to be used as a kind of way to think through like what are the basic things that Christians need to know. Um, so he bases it on the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Uh, although most of the book is concerned with the section on faith and only very briefly on hope and love. Uh, but also the one thing that you always have to keep in mind as just a contextual issue is that uh, – so t like Tom was just talking about how he was surprised, and I'll let him say some more of this, on how closely he tied hope to the Lord's Prayer um, – from a just sort of a contextual historical uh, level, you, we have to keep in mind that Augustine's audience, most of the time, the, the, to whom he was like teaching and speaking, were ninety percent um, unlettered. Uh, uh, they they couldn't read, illiterate. Right now, the one thing that um, my my book hopefully will be coming out soon on on Augustine's sermons, but I go to great detail to try to talk about his audience. Um, and the reason I do so is because they're although they are unlettered, although they don't know how to read, they are actually they they retain things pretty well. Um, and one of the things that you definitely learn if you're becoming a Christian and you can't read, you learn the Lord's Prayer and you memorize it. Um, and that is sort of like a basis for uh, your faith. Um, because you, you know, because that's, you know, the, it, when Augustine has new people who want to be baptized, he makes them learn the Lord's prayer. He makes them learn the Nicene creed, um, and the 10 commandments. And then those become the basis for Christian piety for, th for like the next thousand years until the reformation, uh, because not all Christians, uh, you know, throughout the ages were able to learn how to read and write and would have had a Bible at their hand. So these are what this, so the Lord's prayer, as well as the Nicene creed, and the Ten Commandments were kind of like bare minimum. These are what Christians need to know. Um, and so that's kind of part of why he bases this little handbook for all Christians on the things that he expects uh, that all Christians should have in kind of in their back pocket uh, to call upon in times of, of trial or, or even just times of like thinking about what their faith means. So that's that's kind of the background of this topic of Enchiridion. Um and then, and I know Trevor has some questions on hope, but and some stuff on hope. <laughs> True. Uh, but is it, Tom, did you want to? anybody anybody want to respond to just sort of that general introduction before we turn to Trevor on hope? Uh, no, you, I mean you you called out the one thing I brought up before we started recording, which is that, and, and you know, for the sake of listeners, I did not read the Enchiridion. I didn't. I read just the section on hope, which is very short. Uh, and in which he doesn't say anything at all about hope, as far as I could discern. He only <laughs> talks about the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> he says, I mean, it's like he intros by saying the second 
virtue I want to talk about is hope. And to analyze hope, we got to look at the Lord's Prayer. And then he just looks at the Lord's Prayer. Doesn't even mention how hope, like, at least not explicitly relates. So it's like he just ta- start breaks down the Lord's Prayer into two sections. One section being uh, dealing with worldly needs and one section being uh, with heavenly ones. And, uh, I mean, I yeah, I was kind of like, I'm a little lost <laughs> uh, as, as far as that goes. So anyway, that was all. Yeah, he he only gives one sort of analysis of hope, and it's not in the hope section. It's it's earlier. Uh, I don't know how to call things out here. It's 276 is the – it's on – Oh, so really early. Uh, yeah, yeah, really so... early. Charity cannot exist yeah. without hope, nor hope without charity yeah. is the is – the, uh, yeah italicized section heading he's yeah, he two, gives eight, you, two eight okay yeah 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 eight yeah so that's where he gives a, a brief definition of hope which i will judge thoroughly in a second but i was gonna make a comment about your intro chad that he mostly writes about faith just like in contemporary analytic philosophy especially philosophy <laughs> of religion way more people wrote about have written about faith than about hope and I, it's funny because in my department, um, a friend of mine is writing his dissertation right now. He's a Catholic priest, actually, uh, getting his PhD in philosophy here in Nebraska. And he's writing on faith. Um, and there was a point at which we had a professor here. He just he got a job at Harvard. Uh, lucky duck. But. We had a professor here for a second named Quinn White, and he was uh, his expertise was love. So we had faith, hope, and love all in one department at one point, um, which we all like to talk about. But we still all do talk. But uh, I talked to him a lot about his dissertation because faith and hope are are certainly related, and we and we run into the same literature often. Um, but but there's still just so much more out there on faith than there is on hope, sadly. Well, let's okay. So let's do. Um, let's go to two seventy six two eight. So uh, Augustine says, "What is there that we can hope for without believing in it?" Um, and and so he he does actually mention same thing. He mentions the creed and the Lord's prayer, uh, but then he goes in um, talk a little bit about hope, and he relates hope and believing. Um, so uh, yeah, t- Trevor, which was the uh, definition that you were thinking so of? He says, "But hope." is only for good things, only for things that are in the future, and concern the one who is said to have hope in them. Uh, So this is at least some insight on the nature of hope, or what he thinks is distinctive about hope. Uh, Now, saying it's only, it sounds like these are, I'm going to be charitable and say that he's saying these are necessary conditions on hope, not sufficient uh, for hoping, but um, it's very interesting because about all of those are false, according to me. But <laughs> I, I think, <laughs> I think, um, but I will say so. Just to, yeah, even more set the context. This is considering though hope as a virtue. So here's here's one charitable way to interpret this is that. Rather than being concerned with like hope proper, like 
what is the mental state hope that these humans seem to have? Which is like my project. He might be mm-hmm. thinking like, what is hope as a virtuous character trait? Uh, and like, how should it be had, uh, regardless of how people actually seem to hope? Um, so yeah, in, in my dissertation, I'm writing about the nature and rationality of hope. So it's in part an epistemic and also sort of philosophy of mind is the field that this gets relegated to uh, type of dissertation where I'm trying to describe like, what's the nature of this mental state hoping? And then I'm trying to describe like, what are the conditions under which it's rational or irrational for someone to hope? Uh, Or at least give some elucidation to that conversation. And typically in the philosophical literature, we talk about what we call propositional hopes. So this, these will be denoted by the that clause that, that follows the word hope. So if I hope that, um, you know, my relatives uh, driving on the snowy roads will be safe or something this, this coming Christmas, it's, I have a particular outcome of which I'm uncertain about. A lot, most everyone agrees that you need to be uncertain um, in order to have hope. There's like at least a necessary condition on hope. And then furthermore, I desire it. I want it to come about. Um, And this is actually sort of, this uncertainty bit is reflected in the Bible itself. It's referenced, in fact, here in the 277 section. in Romans, now hope is hope. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This idea being that you don't hope for things that like you directly uh, can perceive using the see analogy here. But furthermore, you just don't hope for things you're certain of. If if I was if my family's there already safe, it, it's weird uh, for me to hope that they get there safely uh weird or perhaps psychologically impossible we might we might argue um so the uncertainty and the desire are are necessary conditions for hope that just about every hope theorist in contemporary analytic philosophy agrees are conditions on hope um but then augustine adds some extra stuff here which is interesting and maybe this is supposed to be character characterized virtuous hope rather than non-virtuous hope. I don't know. Uh, at which point we're not necessarily talking about particular hopes, hoping that this or hoping that that. We might be talking about in general being a hopeful person and maybe what's the way in which one can uh, virtuously be a hopeful person and maybe it's to only hope for good things. Uh Things concerning the future and also the concern the one who is said to have hope in them. So they have to be self-directed hopes, which is uh, interesting. You something about yourself needs to be the the object of your your individual hopes that make up your your being hopeful. I th- um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna yeah. I, I I think he just sort of means like. It would be strange to say that I hope that she hopes that uh, her relatives might be safe. I think it's sort of like usually they they arise in the individual rather than having some hope for someone else to have some hope that 
that something well, that, might come to pass. That's fair. I was thinking that, like, you know, take anyone you love. Arguably, you have lots of hopes for them that, like, don't concern you. Concern the one, though, is pretty vague. Yeah, so it could concern you in yeah. the sense that you just love them, so it concerns you. But it, it makes it sound like it's self-directed, at least sort of how I took it. But But maybe those... Uh, those hopes would also count for him. Like, if Meredith uh, is gonna, you know, show some photos in an art show, I should, I should hope that it goes well. Uh, even though, yeah, it brings no bearing on my life directly, but it would arguably be not only weird for me to not hope it goes well, but probably morally wrong in some sense, or I'd be deficient in my love of her if I hoped, if I didn't hope it went well. Um, yeah. So there hopes like that. I can also the the future thing's a little weird because I could as long as I'm uncertain, I think you can you can have a hope with regards to that outcome. And this would include then past outcomes. So like say you hear about, you know, uh like a, a dangerous situation at your workplace. It's already happened, but you don't know what's occurred yet. You could certainly hope that everyone was safe. Um mm. despite the fact that it happened in the past technically. And hope for good things. I mean, again, this might be characterizing only virtuous hope. I definitely think there's less virtuous versions of hope. I think you can have recalcitrant hopes or hopes that you you wish you didn't have. You, you hope for something, but you kind of felt bad about it. I've watched a lot. I watch a lot of UFC fighting. I think this has come up on the podcast before. And there's some fighters out there that I'll admit, sometimes you just kind of hope they get hit in the face. Um, and But then I always feel bad about that hope. I'm like, no, you can hope they lose, Trevor, but you shouldn't hope that they get... But there's that part of you for a sec where you're like, yeah. If you're going to hope that a UFC fighter loses, you <laughs> are going to have to hope. They get punched in the face. Okay, hold on. They could get. There's so many ways to lose in the UFC. They could just get but slightly. You, you, what do you think are the chances of somebody losing in the UFC without getting hit in the face at least once? Uh, yeah, very low. Let's say. <laughs> let's say. Okay, I gotta hope for something worse than that. That they get like injured or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you okay. really hope that they get injured though? It's only happened one time, but oh, really? I, I, de it was, uh, I'm not exposing myself here. <laughs> I'm not going to, he's listening to the podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to incur the wrath of this, of the fans of this fighter. Um, if, if, if it, if it at all exists, but there was definitely fighters that I was like, oh, okay, this person's, this person's a real piece of work and you kind of can't, and you can't help but going, at least I couldn't. Uh, going into that uh, fight, like hoping for something that I kind of like take back, like I, I wish I didn't hope for it, which yeah. is another thing I think is indicative of hope is that hope can come unbidden. Hope can be unconscious. It can be um, sort of not endorsed by your your highest self in some sense. So uh, but so this is really I find this at least an interesting passage. Yeah. Do you have some like original language insights of for me chad well yeah i i mean i did just look it up i mean it is yeah so you know hope is not anything except for of good things nor uh nor except for of the future things and so that concerning section it just says 
uh pertinentum quispem guerre per hibitor. So it's like it it is just uh it, it pertains to the one who is bearing the hope. Um, yeah, so that's pretty general. May it, that's yeah. vague enough that it might allow <laughs> for other <laughs> for like me hoping that my wife does well or whatever. Um oh. yeah, what well, were you gonna say? I'm up on this idea of um virtuous hope. Um yeah. Which, just in general, thinking back to the passage in First Corinthians about faith, hope, and love. What is that? Thirteen? Is that mm-hmm. no? That's the love chapter. Yeah. So that's that's right, right? Thirteen. First Corinthians yeah. thirteen. Um, uh, faith, hope, and love. It, it is interesting because I think it's easy to to see why love is a virtue. It's less easy to see why hope and faith intrinsically are virtues. Like, I think love probably is intrinsically a virtue. I guess it would depend on how we define it. And obviously people have definitions of love that I would think are not virtuous, uh, that particular definition. But I, I think I think Christians historically have defined love, right, The you know, uh, in, in such a way to where it is defined as an intrinsically virtuous thing. Uh, whereas hope and faith are not clearly that way, either one of them, because, well, I mean, I, I could just bring up faith as an example, right? I mean, if I have faith in a some kind of a, a bad person, uh, that's not intrinsically good on my part, right? If I, if I know this guy who's a thief and I really like him and I have faith in him, uh, not only is it probably bad faith, but it's, it, it's it actually could be bad faith in the sense that uh, shaky or uncertain, but it could actually be bad. Like I could actually be wanting the the uh, malignant characteristics of this character to to somehow express themselves. So it seems to me that for hope and and love to be, or sorry, hope and faith to be virtues in the way that Paul seems to be implying, it does seem that there has to be some kind of necessary connection to the divine, right? Like it has to be hope there in order for it to be virtuous. It must in some way be hope in God, faith in God, that that's what makes it virtuous. So, so therefore hope itself is not actually a virtuous kind of thing intrinsically, but only hope if it's placed in the proper object. And same thing with faith. Am I, I mean, there's probably, I'm sure more to it, but that's kind of what jumps in my mind. I mean, yeah. I mean, rough, roughly speaking, I mean, um, you know, one wrinkle on that is what does it mean to have hope in uh, versus hoping that or hoping for. So the, pre- the preposition changes a lot of things. And I, I would love to talk about this actually. Um because I, I have less ideas about this. I, I have a lot of ideas about what it means for one to hope that P where peace is some proposition, but I have, yeah, less less ideas about what it means for someone to say they have hope in something. Especially uh, in such a way as to where it's distinguishable from faith in someone. A hundred percent, yeah. Like, it, it's really hard to see what the difference is between those two things. Yeah, because I think our our contemporary English uh, language intuitions here, our linguistic intuitions, are that it's just trust. It's just like, oh, you mean trust in? I mean, at least that's how I hear it both ways, is just some sort of version of trust, but maybe with a different affect put on it. 
Um, but it is me... difficult to see. But well, all I was going to say, though, about what, what Tom just said was, so yeah, you might think it's the hope in that affects then whether, for example, individual hoping that's that you have because of what you have hope in are virtuous or something like that. Because I, I'll maintain a, I'll call it intuitive, but definitely not uncontroversial opinion that um, for general hopes, non-propositional hopes, uh, they're still sort of, in some sense, constituted by dispositions to have individual hopes that blank, hope that blank throughout your everyday life. Or to put that uh, in a less abstract and more concrete way, if I am just to be considered hopeful, uh, it's probably because I, I hope for certain good actual particular things in my life, uh, in, in my day-to-day life. So insofar as maybe you have hope in God, how that mani- manifests your like your disposition to be hopeful and what and what those uh, then objects of your hope are, um, that it's inter- it would be interesting to figure out like what the connection is there and like why why having hope in God, for example, gives you the right hopes or the right dispositions, and then yeah, and then then teasing out then exactly what it means to have hope in God. Okay, what were you gonna say, Chad? Well, so I was just thinking about something that's always puzzled me a little bit, uh, which is the fact that virtus, the Latin word where we get the word virtue, uh, has two meanings uh, in in English. You can either translate it as what we mean by virtue, which is contrary to vice, uh, which is, you know, like a good thing, morally positive uh, or, you know, morally uh, – praiseworthy, not blameworthy, these sorts of things. It also means power. Um, so why does it mean power and, uh, you know, uh, praiseworthy rather than blameworthy? And so like one of the things that um, I'm often uh, reminded of when I'm thinking about like, you know, understanding Augustine and and I, I think this plays into his whole sort of uh, cosmological outlook or something is that a virtue is a virtue uh, because it has the power to bring you to completion, um, to perfection, as you would say, as they would say. Um, and so, what what it means to be perfect, contrary to what most people would say, uh, we normally say when we say something is perfect, we mean without flaw or blemish. Uh, but perfect means to have come to and arrived at. Uh, the stated goal um, or the, the the sort of right place. So hope is virtuous because it has the power uh, to carry you along to the state that is good, uh, to that is blessed. Um, and so I think, and I mean, you know, so I think for Augustine, you wouldn't be able to disentangle his hope in God uh, and his hope that uh, you know, if it is actually a thing worth hoping for, that it would be that it would bring about a good state of affairs. Um, so like ultimately, you know, your hope that uh your family arrives. Well, why do you hope that? Uh, well, you hope that uh because with your family here, you know, you can participate in in the sort of love of family uh that ultimately brings you further along in your progress towards uh the the blessed life the good life um and so and which is all constituted in god 
So I think there's that thing that now that doesn't necessarily change why you would have faith versus hope. But I think it's one thing to keep in mind is that virtues, you know, I, I'm I've been, you know, if ever if anyone hasn't read uh uh Owen Barfield's poetic diction or saving the appearances, they're wonderful books. But one of the things is as Owen Barfield says, it is only the modern uh who thinks that that ver- words uh like that have seemingly difficult um differing definitions that there's never any connection between them um so he uses the example of like in the new testament uh spirit also means breath and wind and he says that we should not consider those as three dis- uh, utterly distinct uh things but there's a good reason why those are under one word um and and the same would go here in this case for virtue there's good reason why it also means power um so yeah, I, I think... in fact, in fact, like I just to add to that, I mean, I used the word disposition like so many times, just when yeah. I was talking about hope, hoping in versus hoping that, and arguably that just sort of is the new jargon for power. Um, I yeah. mean, at least yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. Well, and you know, I I like thinking of First Corinthians thirteen, faith, hope, and love; these three abiding. Uh, in that way, because when I do think of hope as a virtue, that is as a characteristic that someone may have. And I think Trevor, you might've said hopefulness before, but it, it, it's, it's like this idea that if somebody loses hope and this could be very specific in some situation or more generally, like in your life, then the, the result is despair and despair, the result is quitting at least, and maybe, of course, destruction, right? Like if I'm, if I work at, well, if I, I have a, I do have a job, anybody who has a job, if they lose hope that their job is meaningful or that their job is going to somehow accomplish what they, what they had hoped it would accomplish, then they're going to be poor workers. I mean, it's going to be such that they're going to ruin uh, kind of their, their situation or their circumstance. Cause I mean, they won't be able to carry on. They just are not going to be able to do it in a way that is meaningful and good. They're going to be bad. Uh, And so anything like that, where if you have hope, that hope does carry you through, like you were saying, Chad, to this desired end. And if you lose that hope, the result is going to be a downfall, right? It's going to be, it's going to be a falling apart in some way. And of course, you see this at a much broader level, losing hope in life. And you, hear, you even hear stories of, of people fighting for survival. And, and anybody who's, I mean, I suspect we've all seen people go through it. But there's a significant change that happens once somebody loses hope that they're going to survive through something, right? Like there, there is a, a, a quick downfall once it, once it comes about. And so this idea of hoping as a virtue uh, I could see Paul essentially saying, look, the thing that's going to carry us through this life and enable us to be faithful and obedient to God and do all these things is going to be hope. And if we lose that hope, we're in trouble. Uh, similarly, if we lose faith in God, that he's good or that he's going to work all things together for good or that he's going to ultimately be victorious, if we lose faith in that, then we will quit, Right. So that that does seem to make a lot of sense to me. I don't know that, you know, there's much precision in anything I just said, but at least I, I have a general sense of how those could be virtuous. 
No, that's I I think that um that tracks also like the contemporary talk about what some people call it's been labeled like basal hope or a, a base a base level hope. Uh some people have called it foundational. I I call it like fundamental or foundational hope. Um it, but it it goes by or just sometimes it's even just called non-propositional hope but this idea that you're just hopeful that or that you have hope for the future this kind of general idea that like the future brings good things which is actually reflected right right here in the writings of the, of Augustine um he says so when we believe that good things await us in the future this is nothing other than to hope for them so this is just this is sort of i think again what he's taking for uh, this general hopefulness to be is just expecting good things. Yeah. And if you lose that, uh, if you don't think like tomorrow can be, you know, better than today in some sense, or, you know, things will get better eventually if they're not, if they don't look like they're going to get better, uh, in the, (laughs) in the short term, then, well, in, in our contemporary, uh, terminology, you're depressed, right? Um, I mean, so despair and despair and depression. Uh, I mean, not mm-hmm. clinically. I'm not, I'm not going that far, but I'm just saying, you're you're arguably suffering from all the same symptoms of like acute depression once you you lose this. So yeah, so as a virtue, that that sort of hope, just this like general like today or tomorrow's going to be better than today. That that seems not only um, virtuous but arguably needed for everyone i would just say all humans uh even if i, I mean even if it's completely placed in the wrong thing so there's that in terminology which we could come back to again uh but it it does seem needed otherwise you're just going to you're you're not going to find a point in living at all if you don't think things can get better um, or will be better than they are, or continue to be good if they are right now good, or however you want to say it. It's interesting. I never thought of it this way, but the idea of faith and hope as antidotes to depression. And depre- no, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make any you know wildly excessive statement by talking about the way people's brains work or anything like that, but just simply that people in a depressive state have... and especially a prolonged one, have probably lost or never had perhaps faith and hope. And and I I think what you just said is really interesting um, because it really flies in the face of stuff I've always uh, argued. But you said faith or you said hope in something even, even if it's the wrong thing. Um, Because having hope in something, even if it's incorrect, can still, you know, be a buoy, right? It can, can lift you, right? At least internally, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think when I think of faith or when I think of hope in the wrong thing, what I generally think of is it's hope in something that is going to fail, right? Hope in something that's going to fail. I've, I, I come from a family of addicts and I've been involved a lot in uh, kind of addiction recovery groups, right? And people who've been involved in addiction recovery and, uh, you know, on, on the church side of things, uh, you know, and I, I, I've had... Uh, you know, friends who were very much against organizations like AA because, and this is the big thing, because they would they would say that AA isn't definitive enough in terms of what it's calling people to put their hope in, right? Like, uh, because AA doesn't try to define what God is, 
uh, and it does it for the purpose of trying to like avoid parochialism in within the organization, trying to say, look, we just need to have something bigger than ourselves to kind of rest in. And we don't want to get caught up in the fights between different religions and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so we're just saying you need to have faith in a greater power. And one of the critiques that, and certainly I've leveled this critique, but that I've heard many times is that if you put your faith in the wrong power, then that thing will fail you, right? So hope in the wrong thing when that thing is incapable if it's not real or something like that, then it's not capable of actually saving, then ultimately your hopes will be dashed. And so that's bad. And I still think that's true. I, I don't want to mm -hmm. deny that. But at the same time, there is a subjective side of this hope, I think, where just having your spirits buoyed might, or is at least somewhat intrinsically good in and of itself, right? Like mm -hmm. that there are some people who, even if they're hoping in something that isn't in the long run going to help, then there might be some buoyancy anyway, right? Yeah. Um, the question is, is, is that a good thing? Because maybe their hopes will ultimately be dashed because that thing isn't real. But anyway, for yeah. some, it's just, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of thinking out loud than making any real assertions. It's just something that, uh, that popped in my head when you were talking about that. Um, no, I, I think that's very interesting. Um, and I agree, uh, you know, basically with, everything you said um yeah i was what i was trying to be even more clear um not that i think i'm clarifying uh for you tom but more for the audience yeah i think it's what i'm trying to say is that hope even in the wrong thing is i think sort of this uh basic trait for the for the human condition if you're just to go on living at all um yeah so in that sense it's like basic even if it is in the wrong thing but then we can talk about yeah what is more or less virtuous to put your hope really in so if your hope yeah so if you put your hope in uh the fact that just you'll make like here's a general platitude i've heard i've heard people say like i'll just make this world a better place than it was you know when i entered it when i leave it or something like this some real general idea like that well, you can't really guarantee that um, in any sense, uh, which I suppose is why it's your hope. I mean, you're uncertain whether you'll accomplish this. But if if then it's like paired with some weird one, like uh, everything happens for a reason. You'll hear you'll hear plenty of secular people say this even, which is really strange, too. I'm like, wow, who provides the reasons? But if, if everything's supposed to happen for a reason, this is supposed to like give them uh, if that's what they put their hope in is the fact that everything happens for a reason. So then they spend their time like looking for positive reasons why things have happened in their life to sort of like, you know, justify their own current life decisions. Again, that might that might not work out for you in the end either. So there's certainly uh, views of the world that probably aren't as good to put your hope in. And we're probably just by talking about it right now, elucidating what we then mean by this hope in phrase which is uh seeming to be something like trust like accepting something is true like treating it as true even if you don't even if you're not certain such that it's like the basis for your actual particular hopes or the basis for thinking that tomorrow will be better uh or in some sense that uh the, the future is is bright it kind of reminds me of tolkien's works by the way um 
just to give give you something else to really chew on here, Tom, since I know you love Tolkien. But it's like the the elves have like a view of their world be, because of the way they are, such that they just they like understand the order of the world and like where things are going. And you'll notice that the characters that lose lose hope are often from the different races that like can't see that everything is ordered to the good. And so Christians are kind of like the elves, right? In the sense that and this is here's an argument for why you should put your hope in God or or why this hope in particular is virtuous is because you know that actually at, at the end of the day, like the most fundamental reality is ordered toward goodness. And that's yeah. an amazing thing. It's, it's and that should give you hope. Yeah. And you you just made my day saying that Christians are like the elves of the world. <laughs> because you're right. That's actually an observation I've never thought of. You are right. The yeah. elves the elves are not disjointed like everybody else. And it's because they understand that the world is ordered towards the good. You're like, that's actually in the movies, in the, in the Peter Jackson trilogy. That's the worst thing that happens in the movies is the elves come to fight at Helm's Deep. Uh, and, yes. and it's the worst thing for a number mm -hmm. of reasons. It just became worse in my mind, even after you said <laughs> that, because first, <laughs> First, it was terrible because it robs the beauty of the event itself, right? In the book, you have a retelling essentially of like the classic story of the 300, right? You've got this very small portion of men who have no chance of winning, who are fighting with everything they have to the death, if need be, against a, a, a masked multitude. It's like this beautiful thing. But then in the movie version, it's like the elves feel like they need to come in to, to do this. But the elves of the books know that they don't need to do that. This is not their story. But they understand that it is oriented the way it is meant to be oriented. And at the end of the day, that is going to be good. This is really good, Trevor. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I excited you. I'm glad I excited you. Well, and also, just, just as an aside, too, I mean – it's like, I, I really do have to kind of think, I know I just made the comments earlier about having hope in the wrong things. I need to really kind of think through all the consequences because I haven't, I haven't really thought of this, but you know, there's a tendency because I am a, because I, as a Christian have a confidence that the world is ordered towards a good end. I, I have that confidence because I have a sense of how that world is actually ordered, meaning I know the narrative, right? I know where it ends. I know that according to the narrative, Jesus returns and he restores all things right and he wipes away every tear and all of those things. And so consequently, when I hear the kind of hopes that you were describing a moment ago that people will have, right? Well, I'll leave the world a better place or or he's in a better place or, or all of these different kinds of things, these platitudes people just say, my tendency is to be quite cynical whenever I hear them because I'm like, nope. That actually, all of this is false hope. All of this is hopeful thinking that isn't rooted in the real narrative, right? Um, and so I, I, I just am saying that to acknowledge these mm -hmm. things going on in my mind. I need to think through the consequences of it all, but that's, uh, yeah, just something that, something that was. That's hope. I mean, I, I know I can't get away from this, but I love, this is why I love languages and etymology. It's hope without power. I mean, yeah. it is like only yeah. the, only the modern, really only the modern can come up with that. Only the <laughs> modern can separate the power from the virtue. 
Yep. <laughs> and, and and that and actually in a certain ex- to a certain extent, right? This is why Owen Barfield is so great and why Owen Barfield was an integral part of C.S. Lewis's salvation. Um he credits Barfield with helping him think through how he had become such a modern and tried to disentangle all of these things and separate them all and make them all, you know, and and Barfield helped him to have a more uh unified vision. Um, to see how you know hope has power yeah hope without power that is such a good description of our world hope without power <laughs> it, it'll, it'll all work out i don't know why and there's i'm not tying it to anything it's just it's going to work out right not recognizing the cost that comes in between i mean it really is the 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 kingdom without the cross right um because because we just want it gifted to us or we anticipate that it will just be gifted to us. And we don't anticipate the actual sacrifice of what comes, uh, you know, comes along with it. Yeah. And of course in my, my own like writings. uh, So right now I'm in a a section of the dissertation where I'm not even touching these topics. I am going to be writing the, this, this coming semester, I'm going to be working on a paper on the value of hope in your life. So that's when I'll get to do all this fun stuff. But I am gearing up to like thinking about it more. So this is why I have some thoughts about it, and hence, and I'm also rereading the Lord of the Rings right now. So I've been thinking a lot about nice the, the elves. <laughs> but um, but so wait, wait, can I? Yes, yes, go, Chad. Chad, we've talked forever. All right. So okay. So we we eventually we'll probably need to move on from this section, although maybe not. Okay. One. Okay. One other thing. <laughs> I, it's it's hard to not want to like tie a bow on the other on what we just did because that was I think that yeah that was that was the power of a conversation uh, uh and and I really enjoyed that uh so I I think it's interesting though just to unpack a little bit what he does here right so he has faith at the foundation of this and so now trying to distinguish hope and faith is kind of an interesting thing so he's you know he talks about being in good faith and in bad faith um. And I actually think that uh, Augustine might argue that the, um, the, you know, that all of us have faith in one thing or another, right? So, like the the lie that we tell ourselves is that the scientist has doesn't have faith; the scientist has reason, uh, or something like that. Um, and and so, you know, Augustine thinks that all of us have faith in something, but hope. Uh, is only the purview of the Christian uh, because of the love in which it is rooted. Um, so he wants this. He wants to say that that hope is uh, is really something that's only characteristic of the Christian. So then his contra- What is interesting though is his contrary for hope here is fear. Um, it's not mm-hmm. despair, um, which is what you'd you know you might expect that the contrary of hope is despair, but he says it's fear. Um, so anybody who believes they are destined for, uh, for him that is God and his mind runs away from others in horror is more rightly said to fear than to hope. Um, yeah. So, I mean, following the Aristotelian square, it could be the yeah. despair is the contradictory of hope, but the contrary is fear. And, and the reason why mm-hmm. is, uh, just taking the analogy of like, essentially you're just replacing it with a negation fear is very similar to hope even in contemporary analytic philosophy because it is again an uncertain outcome but rather than one you desire occurs you just desire that it doesn't occur 
So yeah. I mean that that kind of is the flip. It's the negation of the the desire aspect of hope. Mm. Anyway, that was just to add to that. That's good. I'm glad you brought up the Aristotelian square. That's I mean that's <laughs> exactly right. I mean because we think because the way we define contraries now is different, really, from the way at least Aristotle would have. I don't know. I mean, to what degree Augustine is is thinking that? Nor do I know how precise that specific word is there. Like if he's really trying to bring up that distinct logical thing, but you are right. Like, uh, because on, in Aristotle's view, I, I don't know if this is going to matter, but contradictories cannot, cannot be simultaneously true, nor can they simultaneously be false. The contraries cannot be simultaneously true, but they can both be simultaneously false. That's kind of the distinction between the two. I don't know that that would matter in this particular instance that is whether or not you could be hopeful and fearful at or whether or not you could be it would be false that you would be hopeful or fearful about something yeah, you I probably can't you probably that. can't be hopeful and fearful of the exact same thing at the exact same time so in that sense there's there's some sort of psychological disparity but can you be both hopeful and fearful about the future generally talking about hope in this more basic way that we've been talking about yeah it seems mm-hmm. it seems so. That seems certainly possible because, despite your, despite your best moments when you're being positive and you're sort of giving yourself a pep talk, uh, like your family. Let's say your family's late on that snowy drive and you've called them and they're not answering. You're gonna give yourself this pep talk, like, "Well, they just have the music on and they can't hear their phones and they're probably fine." And those are your best moments, but your worst moments, you're kind of like, "Oh no, they're dead." They're dead. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I at least understand what it means to be both hopeful and fearful um, at the same time. I, I think I've experienced it weirdly. So in that sense, I, I, I do get it. Um, yeah. It seems common to the human experience. Yeah. And yet it does seem clear that they're contrary in certain ways, too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it's about two different in that. And in that particular example, it's like about the two different outcomes. It's like. I'm, I'm fearful of the worst and I'm hopeful for the best in some sense, right? Uh, that they get home, that they're really safe versus that they've, they've gotten in a wreck or whatever. And then I've got all sorts of middling feelings in between of like, just slid off the road, but they're okay. It's like, ah, oh, well, I didn't, I don't, I don't hope for that, but oh, at least my worst fears aren't realized and, you know, <laughs> so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask another question and bring up another kind of contemporary topic that I find deeply troubling, but I think it relates to this question about like what you were just talking about as Christians is the ones that hope. Um, and, you know, we could go down the whole road on abortion, which is a well-traversed topic uh, in uh, American life, uh, in the, meaning in the United States. And, and, you know, we've had some changes in Dobbs and all of this, but one thing that has emerged that I've I'm I'm actually kind of interested that even more liberal leaning theologians find in some ways uh, despicable is that in Canada now, uh, you know, it is basically it's pretty easy to get medically assisted suicide um, and you could get medically assisted suicide for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with. Um, you know, being very old and having no lifespan. And it's not just pulling the plug, so to speak, in like the Terry Schiavo kind of case that I remember, like when I was in high school or whatever it was, when we used to talk about, you know, brain death and vegetative states and things like so like, you know, we used to think about sort of euthanasia on that level. But it seems like they're just euthanizing poor people. 
um, in uh, Canada. Like you can go to the hospital and say, I despair of my life. I need medically assisted suicide because I don't have a home. And they will just help you to your death. Um, now, is and- that, so I, I've seen references to this on like Twitter and what have you. My gut is always to assume it's being blown out of proportion and not true. <laughs> but like, I mean, I'm always like, this is sensationalist, you know, stuff that people are saying. But I mean, like, are there, is there really, I mean, do you know what the laws are in terms of what? I, I mean, allow? I've just read. Yeah, I've just read one article referenced uh, by, uh, again, a guy I would consider a more liberal-leaning, left-leaning theologian who found this troubling from a – but from a Marxist perspective. Like it's essentially like the the capitalist, the the, – you know, the the one on top who's going after the proletariat um, and doing a kind of material, you know, materialist in that way uh, analysis of the situation. Um, and so which I found interesting. Um, but yeah, well, I, I don't know the particulars, like how easy it actually is. I don't I've not read all of the, the laws, uh, but I mean, but it just it just seems to me like in a society that uh, and, 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 you know, like I said, I think there's I think there are a lot of of important connections to even conversations about abortion um, because they seem to have this. It's the same fundamental impulse. Like you have no hope for life. So why let it begin? Yeah. Um, and and so you have no hope for life. So why not terminate it? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, to me, it's the same proposition, just at a different stage. Yeah. So like in the sort of definitive uh, contemporary book right now on hope, which is called How We Hope, A Moral Psychology by the philosopher Adrian Martin. It's definitive in the sense that right now sort of everyone is reacting to it um, in the hope literature. If you're writing about hope, you're in some sense regarding her work as a, a base point. Since she does a really good job of kind of summarizing a lot of the, her predecessors up until her, but she wrote this in, I think in 2013 or 14, and then um, she quick she sort of quickly dispatches their views and then gives her own and now everyone's sort of reacting to her view. Um, but in, in this book, she actually has a section about what she calls secular faith because she's coming at it from a non-religious uh, point of view. Um, and she she defends this notion of secular faith. This could be its own topic. But when she's talking about it, she actually talks about suicide weirdly. And she has this argument that I can't recite off the top of my head. I'd have to grab her book, which is somewhere over here. Um, but she she recites this argument that like there's like hopeful ways to give up your life. Uh, you might, which sounds weird, but it's like very particular circumstances like a person who believes that, for example, um, better things are coming for them if they give up their life because maybe they have like a different view of the they have a certain view of the afterlife, or because they think like by killing uh, themselves, they they'll bring about some good, they'll make the world better in some sense. Um, anyway, that's just all to add a wrinkle to the conversation. It's not to defend. Uh, to defend the view but it is certainly disturbing uh for any government to sort of in some sense endorse uh what it seems intuitively like just hopefulness or hopeless hopelessness sorry 
just to yeah. endorse hopelessness, like, and just like put a stamp of approval on some people just being hopeless. That does seem in some sense horrible if that's what's going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And something should to be avoided. Cause as I said, as we just said before, whether or not people are putting their hopes in the right thing, it's at least good to have hope. I think, I think it's a minimum. You need to have some hope, uh, in, in this life. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's interesting. I hadn't thought, I mean, I mean, it's obvious when you guys say it, but I don't think I have reflected on either abortion or physician assisted suicide or things of that nature in light of the virtue of hope. I mean, obviously these, these center on the idea of hope. Right. And, and it seems to me in general, and, and this is something again that I uh, this is unanalyzed. Like I'm just speaking off the. I I, I really, <laughs> I mean, I guess this is probably you know part of the problem when you do a podcast that's just conversational rather than scripted is that <laughs> you're you're gonna come, the things are gonna come up that you just didn't think about, didn't prepare for. Um, but as, as I sit here and think about it, uh, you know, because we have a lot of assumptions, or I should say, especially, you know, I think kind of in uh pop christianity or uh cultural christianity or evangelical maybe maybe conservative evangelical christianity pop christianity you know that side of the equation i think a lot of times you know we have these assumptions about what is right and wrong based on just simple rules that we have been taught things like uh it is wrong to commit suicide or life is always meant to be protected, right? We have these principles, these propositional principles that we hold to, but we haven't really fleshed out why, um, why these things are true or any of those kinds of things. And so it's, you know, the result is, is that we might have a very strong take on abortion uh, that it's wrong or on physician assisted suicide that it's wrong without really thinking through, you know, ultimately um, the motivations for such things. And clearly it has something to do with this bit of hope, right? This, this idea of hope. And, 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 and I think if you want to start kind of thinking through, well, when would be a situation in which maybe something like this would be allowed, then it's going to be directly connected with the idea of hope, right? So, I mean, if I were to just, for instance, bringing up abortion, if I were to try to find an, an issue where most people, even people who are very much against abortion could stop at least and pause and think, well, maybe, in this case, the example is going to be something like this. Um, it's a situation where uh, there's, and, and again, I, I won't know the biological language here, but some kind of a, a really gnarly situation where the mother and the child's lives are in in great likelihood of of uh, you know serious yeah, yeah. things going wrong, where both of them could die. Right, both the 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 baby in the womb and the mother will likely die if they carry through with this pregnancy. And, and I don't think, and maybe people don't realize this, I doubt that there's a scenario where it would ever be 100% likelihood, right? Because that just doesn't exist. But where you have a really high likelihood that the mother is going to die if she carries this baby to term and the baby's going to die. I think a lot of people, even people who are adamantly against abortion, would pause and say, okay, now I see a scenario where maybe some kind of an intervention would need to take place. And that is going to be directly tied to 
the degree of hope that it that is there, right? Like the hope is really, 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 really low. The hope of survival, the hope of making it, the hope of of, of thriving is really low, right? Um, and so that's when people start to go, okay, well, maybe this is a situation where this is necessary. Conversely, when somebody sits there and says something like, oh, well, the mother is young and very poor and will likely... Um, uh, you know, be stuck with a child that is going to have a lot of disadvantages. Everybody else stops back and goes, wait a minute, you want to put an end to this pregnancy because there is a, a possibility or maybe even a slight probability that disadvantages will exist. Well, that seems wrong. Right. Um, or you, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like yeah. the, the degree to which it becomes acceptable to people is directly corollary or correlated to the amount of hope that exists in the situation, right? And the closer that you get to zero hope, the closer or the the more the idea becomes acceptable to people, right? Um, most people, when it comes to uh, you know, I mean, physician assisted suicide, you know, notwithstanding, I'll, I'll use a different example. I have a um, uh, a student who is going, a former student who is going to die in the next week or two, a couple of weeks. Uh, he's He's been battling leukemia for seven years. And two weeks ago, uh, the doctor said, there isn't any more, there are no more pads forward, right? This is, this is, this is going to get you. And all that we can do is we could prolong your life by a couple of weeks. Literally, he said by, you know, three or four weeks by continuing to subject your body to, you know, really destructive things. And so I, you know, I, I went, I went and visited the student and then, you know, talked to him a bunch over the last couple of weeks. And, um, one of the things he told me, he said, as long as they told me I had a chance, I was willing to fight as much as need be. But now that they've told me there is no chance, I'm not going to bother to fight anymore. Right. Like he's like, I'm not going to keep trying to take these treatments, which are terrible. And I hate if they're not going to do anything for me. You're right. And and then I, you know, I asked him, you know, how he feels, you know, just how he's doing with everything. And he said, I decided a long time ago that I'm not going to allow my mind to be destroyed by something I don't have control over. Right. So um, I, I think about those kinds of things. And uh, and everybody who knows him is kind of we recognize now that hope is basically at zero. And it's it's changed everything about the way we all interact with him, right? It changes the way we pray for him and all of that kind of stuff. We don't we don't really pray for healing. We do a little bit, but it's almost like apologetically, like Lord, I'm so like if possible, we know you can do anything, but in all likelihood, we acknowledge that there's no chance you're going to. So we just instead pray for you know for comfort and that kind of stuff. It's uh it, it, it's it seems to me that the degree to which we, and maybe at least as Christians, but maybe this is really visceral to humanity in general, the degree to which we think people should be fighting is directly proportional to the degree to which hope exists, right? And once hope ceases to exist, or the closer it gets to ceasing to exist, the far more understanding we are of the the desire to no longer fight in that in that sense to live. Right. And I think that's probably one of the things that, that does get to me when I hear stories like what you just described, Chad, with physician assisted suicide. I mean, there are times when I'm very sympathetic 
to people who are in situations where they we know there's going to be prolonged suffering and there is no hope for for you know for survival and there's a part of me which is like okay let's not unnecessarily prolong right at least as as much as we can but then when you hear some things you're like dude come on i mean life is going to be hard and we should hold on <laughs> because mm-hmm. you should hold on for a while i mean at least as much as you can you know so i don't know anyway again just yeah and i think it's it's not merely because it's like oh I, your life's just valuable so you should just hold on to it just because it's intrinsically valuable but it's also like a legitimate love for the person like it's in so much as you you can uh love total strangers uh which which you're called to do um to the degree that you do it well at minimum it should be yeah for their best interest which corresponds exactly to what you're saying when when it's not in their best interest that's when you yeah it sort of corresponds to when it's when you, you feel like it's okay to endorse this attitude of not fighting anymore, I should say. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, it, it's interesting because we, we earlier brought up like the difference between like, or, well, we didn't bring up the difference, but we were talking about depression and it's in its relation to despair. And we were, but we both sort of made some, some comments about clinical depression. Like, well, not, not talking about that exactly, but here's some things to say. It is interesting to note that like people who seem to have like an actual um, some sort of thing going wrong in the brain that causes their depression versus just having acute depression due to like the circumstances of your of your life that a lot of those people that when they do receive treatment hope comes back. So I do think like the default of the healthy mind. Um, uh, you know, taking into consideration all things considered, given whatever the chances are of the outcome of the thing you hope for, um, it is really to be hopeful in general. Um, I, I know someone who personally told me this, that they're like, I, I was suffering from chronic depression for years. As soon as I started to take antidepressants, their, their, their literal belief in God came back to them. They like they had gone, they'd shied away from religious life even during that period. But as soon as life just started to seem hopeful again, just purely at like this sort of brain level, um, in terms of their every day to day life, that opened them up to like, well, I, I think I believe in God again. And and so I, I definitely think there's uh there's a connection here. Sorry, that was loosely related to what you just said, but um but I but I think there is some sort of there is definitely a relation between yeah how how likely things are and, and how we treat the scenario, but also I think just in how healthy someone's mind is and how hopeful they'll they'll end up being. Yeah, so I wanted to. Um, I mean, we've been going for an hour here. Um, we haven't talked about the the other section on hope, but actually, one thing, Tom, and the story that you were telling, I thought it was interesting. Right, we were talking about zero hope um, in this life. Um, and the, the, if, if there's any usefulness to his discussion, uh, on hope in, when he connects it to the Lord's prayer, he says that there are seven petitions in the Lord's prayer, three for eternal gifts, gifts, and the remaining four for temporal ones, which are necessary for acquiring the eternal gifts. Um, 
uh, are it, it, so, but these gifts are certainly. To, and he goes on. He says they begin here, and as we progress, they grow in us. But once they are perfect, again, this is my one of my this is one of my biggest pet peeves in translations from Latin to English. Read complete. <laughs> uh, once they are complete, which is something we must hope for in the next life, they will be possessed forever. Um, and so. I, I want to say that part of what Augustine is trying to alert us to here is I do think that we could talk about hope being zero in terms of the temporal goods. And at that point, so in that point, what your student is, uh, is confronting as a Christian is, okay, I want to come to possession of them forever. So it, it you know, so there's a, there, you know, I think Augustine would even acknowledge there can be a kind of zero hope uh, for temporal goods but but for augustine it, you know part of the part of the interesting thing about his whole outlook here you know is death is you know death is not like a a, a total break yeah it's it, mm-hmm. it it's 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 a continuation of a process um where one ultimately goes to perfection yeah uh, to completion so yeah the hope the hope that um this cancer will go into remission via some medical treatment that's that's the hope that's given up. The, it's a very particular yeah. propositional hope, right? Yeah. As we talked about before. Yeah. But that doesn't take away this sort of maybe general hope. Though, I mean, you know, we would be, um, you know, not realistic if we didn't admit that it's hard to imagine things past death, obviously. And so, in some sense, yeah. I, I am, I'm certainly, um, I would. I would still even be sympathetic, I guess, or, or empathetic with someone who's like, I'm having a hard time even seeing hope now that I'm actually this close, which, by the way, uh, Tom, very sorry to hear about this scenario. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And certainly will will um, keep this person in, in my prayers. But the... Yeah, his name is Paul, by the way, if you Paul. think about okay. it. Paul, yeah. okay, yeah. Chad, he might have been there when you were there. He got He first was diagnosed with leukemia in seventh grade. Um, and sadly, uh, he was one doctor visit away from being given his final clean bill of health and it returned. And then he's been, then that returned his, uh, no, it's not Paul. No. Yeah. It's a Paul Drury is his name. Uh, so he was given a, uh, he was one month away from his given, being given a complete bill of clean bill of health, uh, when it returned and he fought it for about three years afterwards. He had first had no hope. And then sadly, you know, with, uh, there, there's some new treatments coming down the pipe that are really hopeful. And it, he ended up getting a lot of hope, right? Because you know, it started off, he, he was given a 10% chance of making it. And then with this new, um, gosh, I can't remember. It's uh, CAR T cell therapy that they've been, uh, doing lately. Uh, his odds reversed from 10% to 80% to survive. And so a lot of he's been through so many things uh, where he overcame them and you just thought, oh, man, this kid's going to make it. And then it just, you know, he it came back again. And when they came back again, they did one. They, they gave him a, a second. Um, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, uh, oh, gosh. Bone marrow transplant. Oh, and. and that it just didn't take care of it. He actually has a genetic marker that just makes it almost impossible for him to make it through it. So he's uh, he's about twenty years old, but 
Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's and that's Some insanely hard to just. Ex- I mean, as much as we do these like intellectual exercises, like yeah, when you're actually applying this and you're talking about it uh, to people who are in situations like this, it's it's uh it's actually very difficult uh, yeah. to communicate communicate these things in any sort of uh yeah Pastoral empathetic way, way. Or something. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah. Um, I so it's so interesting I wasn't actually planning on bringing it up but man it just was right there right like it's so yeah. that it became the topic that that you know really came well up. and you know this it's 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 definitely pertinent because actually Adrian Martin when she wrote that book I mentioned earlier she did so after spending time following a researcher around in a hospital and particularly uh, in in a cancer uh, ward part of the hospital oncology is that yeah cancer? yeah um, so she you know she followed around some oncologists and that was what you know initiated her own interest in hope just from a purely secular perspective was she realized that people who had hope and this is a weird phenomenon um, there's studies done on this is that the people who are hopeful just they just think they just have something to live for in general are more likely uh, to live. Yep. It's very, it's very strange because there's no seemingly like sort of mechanistic cellular level, like reason why this would be. But uh, these people certainly seem to like take better to the identical treatments of people of, or sorry, to two people who receive an identical treatment. Um, they'll seemingly do better than the other person. If the other person just seems to lack hope and, and they have it. Um, and yep. they even they even notice this with like degrees of hope because some people, if you think hope comes in degrees, is another thing in the hope literature. Uh, you know, some people have some hope, like, well, I have enough hope to like try this experimental treatment, but not enough to where I'm gonna stake too much of my like emotional uh, and just my mental life dedicated to thinking about like what it will be like and. Um, you know, all, all these sorts of thoughts you let yourself have when you, when you really, really, really become hopeful. Um, so, which by the way, just to plug my own view is what I think is indicative of hope. My own view is that hope is a form of emotional investment. Um, so anyway, but so, yeah, so you, it is a strange, um, it's a deep tease there. 110 minutes in. Just because I know everyone was waiting to know what my view of hope was. You got to listen to an hour's worth of conversation <laughs> to get to Trevor's view. <laughs> or you could just message me on Facebook and uh, I won't stop talking about it uh, to you. But, but yeah, it, <laughs> but anyway, so the medical stuff, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly relevant and, and makes sense because um, that like, you know, the cancer ward of a hospital is really where hope becomes um, very relevant. Um, and so, and, and those are the well, sorts reminds- of hope, oh, sorry, the, I was just gonna say, and those are the sorts of hopes that are arguably the most important and the ones we, we value the, the most is in those dire situations. I actually weirdly, because of the part of the literature I ended up in, I weirdly talk a lot about like real dumb, like everyday prosaic hopes more often, <laughs> like hoping that there's chocolate cake at the uh, at the uh, 
you know, department party, um, you know, stuff like that, because I weirdly I'm it's just it's just due to the things I'm arguing about, because I'm arguing about like hope when you're when you're already pretty confident rather than not so confident uh, in the outcome. But anyway, what were you going to say, Chad? <laughs> um, well, I was just going to try to bring it full circle. I mean, we're talking about how. Ho- oh, yeah. Before you bring it full circle, then I want to chime in really quickly on what Trevor was okay. just saying about this kind of medical evidence of the power of hope. Have you guys seen the movie uh, The Farewell? You wait, I think so. Is that that about that Chinese? Family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, fasc- fascinating thing, uh, and I'm going to spoil the the movie for anybody listening. So guys, just an FYI. Spoiler uh, alert! Yeah, spoiler alert! Back in 2012, I was listening to an episode of This American Life, the podcast. Um, and they were interviewing this woman, Lulu Wang, who told this story uh, about her grandmother. And so the story, in short, is this. Her grand, she's, uh, her family uh, are immigrants from China. Uh, she grew up in America. So, so although ethnically Chinese, she's culturally American, right? Um, but her grand, grandmother still lives in China. And her grandmother lives with her sister. Uh, so that is her grandmother's sister. And she went in for her yearly checkup and the doctor found that she had terminal cancer and she had three months to live. So the doctor comes out and, and apparently, and I like, again, I don't know much about the laws and culture over there regarding these things, but this is the way that uh, Lulu Wang uh, describes it. Apparently over there, they don't necessarily tell the patient when they have a terminal illness. Instead, they tell their family members so she went and told, so the doctor went and told the sister that she was terminal. And apparently it's a cultural thing over there that you don't tell a person who's dying that they're dying because the belief is that will actually make them die. Like that, that, that you're actually going to be contributing. Uh, and, and it's rooted in this idea of hope, right? If they have no hope that they're going to live, then they will give up. This is now this podcast is in 2013. She goes on to tell this long story about how, the family therefore finds out all about it and they need to go and say goodbye to her, but they need to do it without telling her goodbye because they don't want to let her know she's dying. So they do a mock wedding. They actually have one of the cousins getting married in China, even though he's not really getting married just so they have an excuse for getting the whole family together to say goodbye to the grandmother. The grandmother thinks she's going to a wedding. Everybody else thinks they're going to say goodbye. And it's it's an astonishing thing. I listened. They actually have a audio recording, and they're translating it, of course. But of the of of Lulu Wang's father giving a toast at the wedding, but instead of talking about the bride and groom, he just talks about the mom, and he's crying the whole time. And everybody goes through and like kisses and hugs her and all these things. Now, here's the thing: at the end of this podcast, they go, "And what happened to your grandmother?" Now, this is in 2013. And she said, she's still alive. And it was like four or five years before that. She was still alive. She hadn't died yet. And they were like, well, what do the doctors say? And they say, she says, well, every year she goes back in for her checkup. And every year they tell her sister that uh, she has three months to live. Now, (laughs) I didn't hear anything else about that until 2019 when a movie comes out about it. It's called The Farewell. So The Farewell is is this movie. And um, I watched a little, or there was a little update on This American Life. 
and they end with with asking her about her grandma. And she goes, "Grandma's still alive." So she's and by the way, she might still be alive. I don't even know. Yeah. But, uh, they asked her if she's going to if grandma has if they've ever told her that she was terminal, and what she said was that. No, they hadn't, but she's going to find out because they're going to air the movie in China and she plans to watch it. And I've never heard what happened ever since. Oh then, so. my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> what a way to find out. <laughs> I did look up relatively recently, like within the last few months, whether she was still alive. And it was hard for because most of the stuff I found was like uh, press stuff from when the movie came out, but I think she's still alive. I could be wrong, but it looks like grandma is still alive. Unbelievable. So, and by yeah. the way, an amazing her, story. her whole family, her whole family is always like, see, we were right. We were right. Don't tell her. Yeah. Don't yeah. Her. And I remember I that. Like, I think about that. I'm like, yeah, I always want to be a realist. I don't like I've watched, I come from a charismatic church. So I've watched people sit here and tell terminal people all the time. God is going to heal you. God is going to heal you. And when it doesn't happen, it's just crushing. And I try to be a realist and tell people the truth. But when I hear stories like that, I'm like, man, I don't know. What do I do? <laughs> I mean, the the effect of the mind on sort of your physiology, your, the rest of your body's health is uh, not understood and and is is crazy. It's, it's crazy that this – I didn't realize that she had – I, I remember this. I'd watched this movie in theater. I had completely forgotten that plot point, though, that it had been like she was still alive. But that is that I just remember that now. It's at the end credits. Yeah. They show sure video of her. On set and meeting all the actors. Yeah. No, and she, she kept doing her Tai Chi in the park. And, yeah. you know, yeah. And she just, she kept doing everything the same, drinking with her friends on Fridays or whatever. And it was just like, I, I definitely think there's something to it. Um, obviously it is weird though because that was a i remember that plot point in the movie that it was but, that was kind of the debate is like whether or not it's better to know or not yeah. um and i, I mean really so, the, tr the true answer might be as to like how it affects your hope i mean would be sort of the sort of the answer but what were you gonna say chad i was gonna say, i mean i have, I have so many responses one just real quick to the movie though it's interesting it's interesting how since it was an entire like it's a whole cultural perspective on it though yeah. so like you know just think about the expectation that a grandma that a person like i can't even imagine going to a doctor's office and not having a doctor tell me what was going on <laughs> um, yeah and so, so you have to have like a whole apparatus for this that's well beyond what we could ever hope to achieve in the united states like i would have to raise charlie believing that when you go to the doctor you don't get to know uh and then it might help out if he does get cancer when he's 60 and him never believing that he never should know what his diagnosis is from the doctor, right? I mean, like, you think about that. I mean, it take a generation uh, for that to even become a possibility. <laughs> By the way, yeah. Ken, I know you have more to say, but can I just throw in? Do you know what they told her she was suffering from? <laughs> they told her she no. was suffering from vague shadows. <laughs> they just made up. <laughs> These bizarre, vague shadows. She's like, okay, I guess, vague shadows. <laughs> that reminds me, there's, like, someone was, I, I looked, I don't, like, what was it? There's, there's some, there's some, like, op, uh, uh, ophthalmological condition that's called cacophthology or something. And it just, in Greek, just means bad eyes. 
Uh, <laughs> and it just, it just cracks me up sometimes. Like if you break down a lot of our like, uh, you know, like latin or greek words for medical conditions like so much of it is just sort of banal uh, but it sounds uh scientific or difficult or whatever because we don't know greek or latin but in this case i'm like yeah it's, they're just telling you your eyes aren't good <laughs> there's nothing mysterious about it but if i say in english oh dude you got some really bad eyes you're like I, okay, what do you want to to do with that? You've got a case of the bad eyes. <laughs> bad eyes. Uh, but yeah, I just I just think of the power of yeah, the power of the mind, the power of the soul. I mean, I would say the soul uh in all of these things like, you know, we have we have so much power sci uh, scientifically um, or we have so much knowledge scientifically and one of the things I was going to go back to, we talked if we talked about uh, uh, AA and believing in a higher power earlier, right? And so we were talking about like how that has to do with hope and how hope can carry you through. And um, I, I don't know if I want to get into personal details, but I'll say someone very close to me was going through AA and my family spent a great deal of time trying to understand the disease of alcoholism. And so we listened to lectures and we listened to doctors and we listened to all these things. And the doctors, they could pinpoint all the different things that go on in your brain about why you get addicted and how the disease of alcoholism works and all of this stuff. And then you come to the end and they say, okay, so what do we do? What is the medicine? What what can you inject her with? What kind of drugs can you give her? And they're like, no, they have to do AA. And I was like, well, how does AA how does AA work? Well, we're not really sure, um, but that's the only way that we know to cure alcoholism. <laughs> um, like you can give different things, you could do different things, but and this was ten years ago. Maybe the science has changed in ten years. But yeah. ten years ago, it was. It was like and, and it was like we have this full understanding of the disease of alcoholism and we call it a disease and you don't you know, you, you, you know, it's it's not a moral failing. And it's like, you know, all these sorts of things. And then they're like and, and it's like, well, what if AA doesn't work? I'm oh, sorry. I mean, like we could do things to kind of mitigate it. We can do other things. But it was just like, you know, but that's it. And it was like you just need and, and to, 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 to connect it to this in my understanding of the farewell story that you're just saying, right? There is just something about getting someone's spirit and mind on board with a project uh, that, 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 you know, you can't reduce uh, ourselves to our material. Uh, you know, if we, if we are just physical, uh, if we are just the mechanics of our DNA or what have you, our biology, it just is not going to be able to explain or cure in the most, you know, in the most, uh, uh, in these places that are just so seriously, uh, I mean, so difficult, like moving beyond just the cake examples. Yeah. But it seemed like you were going to say they may have different, uh, this is oh, like, I was, I, I was 21. Yeah. Actually, it's longer than that. It was 15 years ago. Well, I was going to, I was going to say like, I still think like the, uh, the, the kernel of truth that you're going after is still, uh, still holds to this day in the sense that like m all th like successful addiction therapies still rely on obviously some sort of like psychological help for the patient i.e it's so it has to do with your mental life at the end of the day and the choices yeah. you make and the daily decisions to like rethink uh, you know your life through but it's true there are non um how do i put this AA and treatments like it are abstinence only. However, that is slowly 
coming into question. In fact, I th- this was like, I, I listened to this a few years ago now on Joe Rogan. They had an addiction expert on who uh, purposely, or yeah, because they think it's like the best way, uh, has a, a non-abstinence-only uh, addiction recovery method. I, I Yeah, you can drink a little, but you just uh, learn not to drink too much. Uh, that That is like antithetical to AA, and so this is like actually yeah. is a big debate in the community. There's mm-hmm. also this big debate about like, uh, marijuana's place in this sense a lot of people will quit everything but they'll still do some marijuana or something and so it's sort of like does that count as abstinence only and then so anyway there's trevor i'd be curious to hear that interview with that guy if you think of it could you send me his name if you yeah i'll try to find joe rogan's recorded so many episodes that it's so I hard a to... million i wouldn't worry about it now just if, if it if you figure yeah. it out or if you remember it just let me know for sure i will but um but but still yeah clearly um you have to rethink your life no matter what and you have to rethink about like you have to think about like why you're why you're drinking in the first place and and you have to own your mistakes you know rather than cop out and blame others for your alcoholism and stuff like this you know these are the sorts of things a i i have a big i have big experience with this as well i had someone very close in my life you know go through aa so um yeah so it's it's true that uh there's a there's a lesson to be learned there that uh, whether you're i think whether you're a materialist or not um you can't deny the the power of like whatever it is whatever's going on in the mental uh seems to be very powerful and arguably mysterious and in a, yeah kind of inexplainable yeah yeah and inexplainable yeah. yeah well trevor we have there's no uh there's no protection there's no uh safe space for materialists in this podcast <laughs> wait hold on but what if someone is like peter i'm van not gonna deal with peter van inwagen's <laughs> cerebral cortex no there's yeah i mean I, Get that out of here. <laughs> I have to come at it this way because this is the philosopher in me. Like it's interesting. Just, yeah. but, no, I know what you. I know what you're saying. This is not a materialist <laughs> safe space. Got it. No. Um. I. I was just gonna say briefly, by the way, and I mean very briefly. On the actual section on hope, we've sort of already talked about it. Um. But yeah, the the sort of insights about like what hope is aren't necessarily contained in the hope section they were sort of contained in that earlier section on faith weirdly uh but um it is interesting about like what he discusses as the object of our hope or sorry not hope hope in but um sorry about yeah yeah hope for um so you know we can hope um that we get to we have eternal life like this is something to hope for. Um, this implies that you're not certain. So I don't know. Calls to question p- potentially any soteriology that you know claims that you can be certain that you're saved. I don't know. That's a, that's a, just an interesting theological point there. Uh, you yeah, this hope that basically uh, everything will be perfected in the next life. But it's true that the he mostly focuses on like those temporal things here as being like where hope is because, because those things aren't guaranteed. Um, 
So, you know, give us the stay our daily bread, that sort of thing. Um, and that that is that is really interesting to me because I've always wondered where, like, what exactly I'm allowed to hope for as a Christian and still be pious. Because what interests me is this hope that, for example, that your prayers are even being heard. You know, I've I've had many people confess to me that, like, look, I believe in God, and but I'm some people are in this like fluctuating state where there's like some days I pray confidently and some days I'm like, I hope there's someone actually listening to me. And um, that hope isn't really talked about a lot in, in these texts, at least in these older times, because it's just sort of taken for granted and that, and that's on the side of faith and you already have it. And so now you get to have hope, but I think hoping that there just even is a God or just the sort of hope that you're uh, allowed for your future when you do have hope that there's a, a being like God, some, some being that's ordered toward goodness is love itself. Um, ultimately wants to bring all, uh, you know, right all things and, and uh, fix all things that th- this idea that there is such a being that actually loves you and cares for you um, might be like actually the stepping stone to the faith initially, or at least it's, it, it might be one of the, stages in you might say the process of becoming faithful and and that that side of hope is uh is less talked about but of great theological uh interest to me though i don't know when i'll ever get the chance to investigate that (laughs) but it's something i've thought about because uh it it struck me particularly when i read um uh c.s lewis's book the silver chair part of the chronicle narnia series Mm -hmm. and that that great there's a great speech in there given by a character that is basically like you know what even if i'm wrong i would rather live as if all this is true um than not because like what what hope is there otherwise and like puddle glum puddle glum yeah 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 puddle glum speech is uh yeah I'm definitely going to write about that someday. I just have to. It's, it's, <laughs> to me, it's just one of the greatest things ever. But that I, I've, I've thought about that, like how hope also just sort of provides a ground for like being religious um, and thus like engaging in the process of faith, which then can cult- cultivate this like further hope that I think Augustine's actually trying to elucidate here. Um, and so there, there might be like a twofold actually role uh for hope as a virtue that I, I think maybe one and one of those two uh, roles is being sort of, I think, ignored generally, um, but it is probably important for the, the person before they have faith as well. Yeah. Just 